Is anyone else curious what Burning Man is? Let's find out. Hello, friend. You're listening to the Edited for Content Show, a place where we try to understand a topic by extracting truth from theater. If you like this podcast, let me know, share it, and come back again. To some, art is just a thought brought to reality through expressive medium. Some use photography, some paints, others interpretive dance to share their creative vision. On a rare occasion, art goes from a singularity to a towering inferno, a mecca of creativity and self-expression. One such oasis of nonconformity is a place once a year in the desert of Nevada, Burning Man. A place filled with its own system of trade and tradition, this gala welcomes the spirit and liberates the senses. But if you've never been there, what is Burning Man really about? Let's find out. From California to the Far East, my guest has been a teacher, writer, and an artist with appearances at Burning Man. Welcome to the show, Jenna Lynn. Thanks for having me, Earl. When did your passion and your identification with art kind of first start? You know, like, you know, when did this whole thing start for you? That's such a funny question. I was a film geek as a kid, and I always felt like I wasn't cool enough for that realm. And then I got into writing. I had a great writing teacher in high school called Bob McHeffey, and he's, I think, still teaching, and also Dennis Wimes, who's passed, and they both really inspired me to just love writing, and that's where I began to start to feel like I can call myself a writer, which was the first artistic word I called myself, um, and now I do performance art, and I've helped a lot of people on big art projects, and um, I'm also a tarot reader, which I consider to be an art form. And I'm also a teacher, which I consider to be an art form. So, you know, everything becomes art once you start expanding your perspective on approaching things artistically. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, like, so do you teach tarot or do you teach like art or what do you, what do you teach? What is... I, teach, I teach tarot reading and I also teach intuition coaching, like helping people access their intuition. Um, and I have been a teacher of English as a second language in the past, which I no longer do, but I really learned a lot of skills while being in the actual educational system. Oh, wow. Yeah. And where, and you, where were you when you were teaching English as a second language? I started in Taiwan, in Taichung, Taiwan, which is uh, the second largest city just south of Taipei. And I was there for two years, and that's when I found that I really enjoyed teaching and had a, a knack for it, and then came back and started a school who then hired me to be a service learning coordinator where I designed curriculum that helped international students access volunteer opportunities in Portland. Oh, wow. And as part of uh, our program, by the time I left it, and there's been more since then, we facilitated 34,000 hours of volunteering for international students in Portland by the time I left. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, it was a lot. It felt really good. So I knew a lot of nonprofits in town. Isn't like the population of Portland like 200, 500,000 or something like that? I mean, it's not a million. It's, you know, I haven't checked since we exploded, but it was 500,000 before the explosion. 
and then it, we really got hit with a huge influx of people and that slowed down a lot. So uh, I don't know where we're at right now. Well, yeah, but I mean, 30,000, I mean, that's, I'm just doing the math here and I'm like 34,000 hours. I mean, you know, you get groups sometimes of 50 kids who come in and all do three hours and then that makes 150 hours real quick though. So that's, that's how it adds. Wow. That's still a lot. Um, so when did you first learn about Burning Man? So I went to a, it's funny, I went to a documentary film fest in LA and it had a documentary about Burning Man at it that I missed, but I got intrigued at that point of like, what is this thing? And then, and all these weird people showed up for that. And I'm, I'm sad that I didn't go. And then I was living in New York City working in film and watched that same documentary on TV a couple years later. And I immediately got just electrified and was like, started, I, I just started panicking. I was like, I've got to go. I've got to go. And then um, I called my friends in San Diego who were all kind of stoners and were like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to, you know, they weren't that. <laughs> and I was like, I have to go. But that was 2000, probably three, I'm guessing. And then in 2004, I decided to leave film because it's kind of a toxic industry of art. And I moved to Taiwan to go have a worldly experience. And I moved in with this pair of sweet guys. One was gay and one was straight, Ryan and Thomas. And Thomas was the snarkiest gay man you've ever met. He was snarky about everything, but he had deep reverence and was never snarky about Burning Man. And he would talk to me about it all the time. And so I just started getting intrigued and started, and he kind of became my tour guide as to how to prepare for it, what sort of things I could buy in Taiwan that I could bring to Burning Man that would be neat treats to give out there because it's a gift economy, what to wear, you know, make outfits beforehand to make it more fun. And Taiwan's a really amazing place for shopping for Burning Man because it's affordable and it has outlandish stuff you can buy. A lot of creative art happens in Taiwan too. And so I flew home from my brother's wedding in 2006 and got in touch with a friend who was going and said, I want to join your camp. Is that okay? And she was amazingly welcoming Nikita, amazing woman. And she was like, yep, I got a bicycle for you. Even I went straight to burning man. And then I flew, I, I went to San Francisco after burning man and flew to Bali and traveled for a year and a half through Southeast Asia and India after that. So it was really a big adventure in my life. Oh. It started with Burning Man, and then um, two years later, I went back again. Oh, wow. So, you know, you said when you were younger that you had this desire to be in film, and then you got there, and it was toxic. Yeah. Was that, like, the biggest bummer of all time? Like, you went from, like, this childish dream of, like, I'm going to be in the movies, and then you get there, and it's like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> it's a bummer, but it's also something that the film industry itself talks a lot about. So the producer, that movie, any movie about film talks about its own toxicity. So I felt like I was sort of given a red flag ahead of time. It wasn't a huge surprise, but it was disappointing anyway, especially as a young woman thinking we've progressed so far and still oh. dealing with not so much sexual advances. Um, I'm not shaped right for that, I guess, but, <laughs> but more the constant sort of dismissal of my value and what I had to bring to any situation. And I really felt just done with it. I felt like the universe kept kind of saying, Hey, look, this is good on you for trying, but do you really want to work 80 hours a week getting crapped upon in order to 
work 80 hours a week and get to crap upon others. And that wasn't a motivational stress. Like I just had no motivation towards rising in an industry where I would just get to be dominating over people rather than submissive to cruelty. I just, it's a really ugly industry. The people who I met though, who are at the top, who were, I met a lot of amazing writers, editors, directors, and they were all awesome. So it's not completely infiltrated, but you have to put up with a lot to get to be in a position where you can be kind in that industry, I think. So were you, so basically you weren't valued for what you were bringing to the table and see, and that's, I think that's terrible because you probably had some great ideas that would have probably, you know, enhanced the project. I mean, to be fair, I was young and I didn't know what I even had to bring to the table in some ways. So I get that I also didn't have um, a a full enough sense of my path in film. So I give myself that accountability, Mm -hmm. but it also was just being treated so people are in, it was in New York and people can be just so hard on you. And I just felt like there was a lack of curiosity towards supporting people in their skills. Instead, there was a lot of zero sum mentality of if I give you something, I lose something. And I think that it would have been neat if I could have found someone who mentored me, but it wasn't in the cards and it's okay because um, I love tarot reading now. It's actually a really satisfying thing. And I love my life in Portland and it's not a big film industry here. It would have been hard to live my whole life in New York or LA. And those are really the industry places. So I'm okay with my choice around it, but it was also just, uh, I still love film. (laughs) Right. Right. It's yeah. And like I said, I mean, I mean, at least you kind of had that opportunity to get in there where others, you know, and probably never get that chance, but it's still kind of a bummer because you get there and it's like, eh, yeah, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be. You said one thing I found really interesting about when I left New York was I got really depressed one day and I thought, oh, I didn't have an artistic experience. You know, I was reading Gary Winogrand is one of my favorite street photographers. And I was reading about his artistic experiences in the seventies. And I was like, I got really depressed for a day. of just like, I haven't had an artistic experience. And then I was like, wait a minute here. My friends are fashion designers, opera singers, um, ex- uh, unique modern dancers. I'm in the film industry surrounded by artists and yet only New York can make you feel like you didn't quite achieve it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was like, Oh wait, I have, I have lived an artistic life, you know? And I found that the Bohemia of Portland is more the fun that I was looking for with the artistic experience. Um, There's a lot of everyone's an artist attitude here in contrast to the New York, only those who make money at it are artists attitude. So I feel like it's um, a lot more creative existence on in this part of the country that I really enjoy. Kevin Smith's book, um, which I read and I really loved, he had a moment in there with his sister where he told her one day, he goes, I'm going to be a filmmaker. And she said, well, then you're a filmmaker. And he was like, well, no, I haven't made a film yet. And she goes, no, no, no. If you want to be a filmmaker, then say, I'm a filmmaker. Like, don't, you know, you don't have to be the filmmaker to be a filmmaker. Like, like you said, you don't have to be a paid artist to be an artist. And I always, that always kind of stuck in the back of my head because I think that so much in life that we do have kind of that conception where until you have achieved that goal, it doesn't really matter, but that's not the case at all. 
Yeah, where's the check mark for you? And for me, living artistically is a way of being. And also as a writer, I, I consider myself a writer, but I do feel so much more gratified when I'm actually sitting down to do it regularly. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So if you're a filmmaker, you can say that before you get there, but I also feel like it'll feel like a deeper, more powerful truth if you actually are picking up a camera and editing things together regularly. Oh yeah, for sure. No, I I completely get it. You said something earlier about gift economy. Mm-hmm. What, what is gift economy? <laughs> so one of, there's 10 principles of Burning Man and one of them is a gift economy. So that's this idea that everyone brings a sustainable amount because another principle of Burning Man is uh, self-sufficiency, self-reliance. So you create enough self-reliance for yourself, but you also bring with you something to share. So when I go to Burning Man, I, at the beginning, when I was in Taiwan, they had great face masks, like, because they had been through um, a respiratory illness already of, um, of swine flu, I think. And so they had been through something that had given the masks. I think that we're going to have a mask thing happening, I hope, in America after this, where people wear masks out of choice when they get sick because it just keeps everyone else healthy. So that's what Taiwan culture is already like. And um, they had these outrageously funny, silly, bright, colorful masks at like a quarter a piece. They were so cheap. So I went cloth ones. So I went and just bulked up and I bought like 50 or 60 of them. And other little trinkets that I thought would be fun, like ashtrays that you can keep on a keychain, and you know, oh. just little fun treats that could be useful, practical items mm-hmm. because the dust storm's there. It's good to have dust masks. So I collected those and I gave those out my first year. A lot of people bring stickers that commemorate the year itself or necklaces and shirts and bandanas. And um, so there's some commodification in that, but I personally shifted into doing tarot readings for people. And so the idea is I don't have to give everyone a tarot reading who gives me a trinket. It's not a give and take, like you give me something, I give you something. It's I'm just gifting this thing and whoever gets it, gets it. And I receive whatever comes my way. Okay. All right. So I have chased down some good swag on occasion where I'm like, I need that necklace. I'm going hunting for it. Where's the vomiting sparrows camp? The vomiting sparrows camp. Yeah, they're a good bar. So my first camp was with David Chan, and that was with Nikita and um, a really neat group that came from across the West Coast. It was very all over the place. And then the next two years, I was with Burners Without Borders. So Burners Without Borders started in 2005. During Hurricane Katrina, Burning Man was happening. Mm -hmm. And a group of people said, look, we've got all this survival gear with us. We're all ready to camp. Why don't we do a caravan down to New Orleans, down to Mississippi, and just help out? Let's just show up and help out. And Carmen Mock became in charge of that faction of Burning Man's center camp, in a sense, the the people who run Burning Man. She was a part of that. And so she took over this one camp that was about how do we bring our gifts out into the world and support others in need around the world or create a sense of community with others around the world. And so my first, my second burn was at Burners Without Borders camp, who I had run into in Mississippi and done some projects with them because they were still, they had gone down there for a reunion. I showed up and helped out with a little bit of work they were doing and then camped with them in 2008 and 2009. Okay. 
which is a big theme. It's it's not it's a theme camp and it's a big camp to build because it's just they had a lot of um, in, infrastructure and things to a deck on top of us. Uh, what do you call it? A what do they put on trains for storage? Um, oh, like a um, like a boxcar thing. A boxcar, yeah. So they yeah. had a boxcar and then a deck that we had to build on top of the boxcar and. Oh yeah, because so, it's like open at the top or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And then I gained by by 2010. I gained friends in Portland. I had been I got here in late 2008 and gained a lot of friends in 2009. And then in 2010, I 2010 and 2011, I camped with Mallard, which was my. There's a lot of duck theme camps, and Mallard in 2011 brought a piece of large art to the playa that was, you know, pretty close to the man in the out in the center. So it's shaped like a C. The whole city is shaped like a C, a grid in a C shape. Okay. And then there, there's a thing called the playa, which is the center of the, the man is at it. The, the whole city is on a time scale. So it goes from three o'clock to nine o'clock. Oh, so it makes a clock. And so the man is at the center of noon and then deep playa is behind is is outside the edges of the sea on the um on the open end of the sea okay so the c shape right. <laughs> so basically uh we we brought art that was in the center of the sea in the circle of the sea you know um so it's it's we have a certain language of course that comes out of this culture we build and the playa it means beach right but basically it's the sandy it's not sandy though it's dusty right we're in a dry lake bed where people normally do land sailing. So you can go very fast in the wind because of the dust storms and the wind out there. Okay. So basically they, this huge dried lake bed is made of alkaline dust and then it's very flat Mm -hmm. and they build the city facing a certain direction probably even because the wind always goes the same direction across the city (laughs) and the C shape in the center of it is open playa is open land with lots of art projects mingled into it. And then outside the sea on the open end of the sea is called deep playa. And there's tons of art projects out there. There's like, it's huge expansive land. And then you finally end it at what's called the trash fence because it's a, (laughs) It's a plastic fence that captures all the trash. Oh. (laughs) And so the trash fence is pretty far out and you can ride your bike to there. But if you go outside the trash fence, it's dangerous because you can get lost in this expansive desert. It's incredibly dry. You need a lot of water and you might be high. Who knows? That's part of it. And they won't let you back in. There's no wristbands at Burning Man or there wasn't when I was there. So, because I haven't been since 2012, but I have, I'm I'm very much deep in the culture and kind of know how it's shifted. But the uh, idea is you stay inside the parameters that are created so that you can explore freely and safely in the desert, which is not really possible if you're on your own. You're listening to Edited for Content, separating truth from theater. So the Burning Man in the center and you're, is it like almost like a sundial then in a way because yeah. of the, the time and how it, cause I can, I just picture this like, cause I know the centerpiece is huge. I mean, it's big. Yeah. 
I mean, metaphorically, it's the centerpiece that would you could say is a sundial. I haven't noticed shadows hitting it in a way where it would work that way, but it probably does drop a shadow in a sundial sense because um, it is a large structure. They haven't been allowing people since 2017 to be climbing on the man. You used to have access to go up and and climb up on, not on top of the man part, but on the, there would be a zone underneath it that was a, a structure building up to the top of it oh. and you could go in there and there would be an art piece inside there and um in 2000 in 2007 during the green man a which was a you know environmentally conscious one a mentally ill man went and burned the man on tuesday during an eclipse of the moon i think not 100 percent certain on that but something like that and so the man caught on fire too soon, and then they spent the week rebuilding it, which some question was the right choice or not. They could have just let it be. And and then in 2017, a man fatally ran into the burn on burn night and died, another person who was mentally ill at the time at least, and um, died. So they, they've, they've, it says on the back of the ticket that you might die at Burning Man. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I had a double rollover car accident coming back from Burning Man one year, so that was the closest I've come to death in my life. And it's, you know, you're climbing on structures built by non-engineers that are 20, 30 feet in the air. You can fall down. You can hurt yourself. You know, you, it's it's a dangerous, uninhabitable environment, and there is a danger factor to it. it there's art cars running around. I'm sure accidents happen there. It's it's definitely, they try to create some safety precautions, but the concept of it is also free will to hurt yourself if you need to, I guess. Right. Well, I mean, the very first day I was ever out there, I was looking for the camp I was supposed to stay at, and I was walking around, and I had no water on me. And a guy walked by me, and he's like, where's your water? And I'm like, oh, I'm just looking for my friend's camp. He goes, no, 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 go back, get some water. You don't walk around here without water. And so there is a sort of social support of we're watching each other's backs. I was clearly a newbie. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there is a certain level of people watching out for each other. One time I saw these guys setting up they'd, these huge Egyptian wings of, I believe, the goddess Ma'at. And I was like, where did you get these? And they're like, oh, uh, Vegas Casino was closing down and we got it. We got these for free. And I'm like, well, that's great. But you're putting them directly in the path of the wind. So oh. I think, and Ma'at is the goddess of truth. So you might be calling in some pretty intensive goddess of truth energy if you don't put that lady like on a healthier stability. And so they lowered her down onto the ground instead of having her up high where she was going to blow over and knock some people down. Right. right. So there's a lot of people just haphazardly not really thinking about the circumstances of domino effect that can happen when you have giant heavy foam wings you're trying to hang up. Somewhere. Oh yeah. So <laughs> and, how, how long is the, so from the time that you go to set up your camp till the final night, how long is it? So it always ends on Labor Day Monday. Oh, okay. And it typically starts the Monday before that. But because of the crowds being so large, it's gone. When I first went, it was about 45,000 people. And it's up to 70, maybe even 75,000 people, I think. So it's exploded in size in a short time. And um, so they have... Uh, 
opened it up to start a little bit earlier to kind of expand the time people can come in the gate without it being just a bum rush for the gate. So what happens is if you get there is it's a long wait in your car where it's like three in the morning and you're like half asleep in the car and then the car and then you see the line moving and you have to wake up and drive forward 10 feet. And (laughs) it's it's a lot coming in. So a lot of people also get early arrival passes. Any theme camps get a certain amount of those so that you can come in early and help arrange a camp. Now, if you get early, you're not partying yet. You're on work time. You're building a camp. You're, you're creating something, you're putting up art. You're a part of a project that's meaningful. And my favorite years have been early arrival years and late exit years. So I don't have to deal with the crowds, but I also just to see the city get built from nothing is really amazing. Oh. You have to work. It's, it's some, it's some heavy work in the desert too. It's hot, it's windy and you're trying to put up structures. And so I, I have to ask, so in terms of these passes and this, um, kind of an organized entry and stuff, then the people who are kind of in charge of it, I mean, there's given the number of people involved, like, you know, 75,000 plus, this is kind of a big lucrative thing. I mean, right. I mean, there's a lot of money here. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. It's million, multi-million dollar organization. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Cause it didn't start that way. No, it started, I guess. I mean, there's definitely questions as to the mythology of it because there's some people who um, don't like that Larry Harvey became the center of it, but who recently passed. But Larry Harvey, uh, I think the story goes that he broke up with his girlfriend or they broke up and he went and decided to go out to this beach near San Francisco and burn an effigy as a sort of like releasing of that relationship. I don't, and honestly, this is me winging it here. I'm not an expert. And then they got kicked off the beach after a few years. And some people were into land sailing in that community and said, I know a space where we can probably set up a big party with no problems. There's not going to be neighbors. And they did their first exodus out there. I think I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know, sometime in the eighties or nineties, I forget late eighties, I think. And um, it was a small thing for years. It was a small thing. You can even see there's a chart of, you know, how many the population of Burning Man through the years. And it really seemed to explode and begin the, 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 the late 90s is when it started to really explode into tens of thousands. And then I think. And again, I'm not an expert on this. But right, right, right. It, so it, it really, like I said, from 2006 to 2012, it, it jumped by i think twenty five thousand people you know that's and that's a huge number it's the sixth largest city in the state of nevada during the week that it's open it's the sixth largest city Mm -hmm. wow that's huge for nevada yeah i mean nevada's the the next largest city is a hundred thousand uh the fifth largest city is a hundred thousand. And then the one after that is like 50 or 60. And so we're right in there for a festival in a way. I mean, it's, it's more than a festival. I think festival kind of is like a really butter over kind of term for it. Cause it's much bigger than that. But 
for that type of gathering that's a little, little over a week long, that's, I mean, that's a significant gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, so do's and don'ts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are the rules of Burning Man? So we have the 10 principles, which um, I, I uh, would love to also just, I appreciate that they have these 10 principles. And one of them is about participation. And I'd say the 10 principles are the do's in a big way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so gift economy is one of them. Decommodification, which they, they work on. <laughs> That's a challenging one. But they don't want advertising. There's no advertising out there. Um, and radical inclusion that you are accepting people you wouldn't normally feel comfortable accepting. Like what's neat about Burning Man is the community sense out there that you have people who are geeks and punks uniting, you know, although that's pretty common sometimes these days, I'm trying to think of more desperate groups, but that you have different subcultures who are being respectful and inclusive of each other. Um, Radical self-reliance that you have all your stuff to provide for yourself, radical self-expression that you are pushing your own envelope. And one of my favorite art pieces I've seen out there that's just a small, some dude made this happen, was a guy was pushing with a broomstick a like 10 foot by five foot envelope. He was just pushing an envelope around. And that's really, to me, a great signature statement about what Burning Man should be about, that you should go out there and push your own comfort zone. Um, and so whatever your own self-expression is that you wish you could try out, it's a great place to try it because of that. It's incredibly important that you're not taking pictures of people and posting them without their permission, but don't even take pictures of people you haven't asked permission of in the first place. Consent. I would say the number one do of Burning Man is consent. You don't presume everything's okay just because there's a freedom there. You ask permission to touch someone. You ask permission to, you know, um, kiss someone. You ask permission to sit in someone's art piece that maybe isn't meant to be climbed on or sat upon. You know, you, there's usually a a minder at many of the art pieces you can ask. Um, So the idea is that radical self-expression, people are pushing their own limits and they might have a secret life that they're expressing here. So you want to be really respectful that you're not bringing that out into the world that they're going to lose their job over. Um, So consent, I think, is my biggest one. One time uh, a, a young guy at my second or third burn, I was sitting in a Petri dish of stuffed animals designed after different diseases. And, (laughs) and uh, a guy took a picture of me and I was like, Whoa, no, 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 you don't get to do that. And your, your foot gets what's called pliified out there. It can get kind of gross. Mine wasn't too gross, but your feet get really dry from the alkaline dust. And I was like, Hey, you need to kiss my foot now. And you're deleting that picture as a sense of like, there is a, a consequence for not respecting someone's boundaries. And and he did. And he was very nice and deleted the photo. And I was like, I know you're new at this. So just please be respectful of your photography this week. Um, the other thing is communal effort and participation are part of the principles. And that's that idea that we're all bringing something together mm-hmm. and working as a community. But also participation is, is that you're really being, you're not a tourist. You're not just looking and taking pictures and getting your Instagram chart filled up, you know, you're you're bringing your own art, bringing gifts, um, helping other people with their art, being involved in a real active way. That's super important. And I'm, 
I just pity people who don't do that, frankly. I think they're just so missing out on the point. Civic responsibility and leaving no trace are some principles that are great around like, you know, you're accountable for your responsibility. You're technically not supposed to break laws. And in general, that's a good rule. Right. Obviously, there's one big one that gets broken often. <laughs> and, and But um, that's changed a lot, too, with the passing of laws and things. I mean, I mean, you know, some of the harder stuff obviously isn't legal, but in terms of grass and, you know, I mean, you know, marijuana and stuff in Nevada, I think it's legal now if I'm not like. It is now. Yeah. Yeah. But back in the day it wasn't, but I mean, you know, so at least that's. That part's been easier. Yeah. yeah. And during 2010 to 2012, there was a huge police influence and there still is larger than there used to be, but those three years were especially heavy. Um, so there is a police out there. There's actually an, oh, one more of the principles just to mention is immediacy, which speaks to just also the in the moment. Being in the moment is a really key part of being out there. But the police situation, um, I have been ticketed. Well, I didn't get ticketed, but my group got ticketed um, for marijuana in 2012 and um it was not a pleasant experience and the <laughs> the police had threatened to sick dogs on us for looking you know drug dogs and were aggressive i felt not physically but verbally right. and um luckily we only got you know a marijuana charge and we and they they then right as we finished with signing the like yeah we're paying you $500 thing up walks Mr. Friendly Cop, who's covered in swag. Swag being like all the little pins and stickers. <laughs> He's just ripping in like, everybody loves me. I got all the gifts, you know? Right. He's like, hey, guys, how's it going? You having an okay time? Yeah, I know it's kind of intense sometimes. The cops, right? It's cool. We're cool cops. All right, have a good time. You guys go party. And it was like this weird... <laughs> <laughs> This is the real, like, he was clearly the PR cop right. after being treated in this way that felt really gross. This guy is there to kind of clean it up because they got their money now. And it was like a $500 ticket, you know? And um, See, for me, that's kind of... They were BLM cops, and then there's local cops. So there's... Yeah, what were you going to say? No, no, I was just going to say, like, to me, that's low-hanging fruit. Like, that's like going to Woodstock and saying... We're going to see if there's any drugs here. Like, like that's the lowest yeah. hanging fruit of pot. Like, and they, I think BLM in particular, it's from what I understand is better to get caught by BLM with something like that because they just want your money. Right. But the regular local cops will be a lot more enforcey. So, uh, you know, uh, and then the other thing is what's the cool. One of the things I love about Bernie man that um, when I go back, I might sign up to do is Rangers. So Rangers are the Bernie man group of people who they wear khaki <laughs> so you know how to find them they wear like khaki hats and and sorry for all you british people out there so we call it and um khaki shirts and khaki kilts or pants and they look like park rangers you know and they are they're the police who will walk up to you and go hey guys you're smoking marijuana right out in the middle of nowhere maybe you should be taking this into your camp zone where they can't right know, go if you're inside a camp area they're not allowed to in it's trespassing technically because that's your that's your territory um and so they, they'll come up and kind of give you hints of like hey your behavior might get you in trouble with the real police so right. but more importantly what the rangers do is they help people who are having 
altercations. They calm things down. You know, they um, support women who sadly have had a sexual assault of some kind, which of course can happen. Um, there is a large consent culture there, but there's also people who break it. And there's a lot of boobs out. So, you know, people misunderstand what that means sometimes. Um, so there's rangers are going out and helping people who got too high, talking them down. Um, they just are like your friendly, local, supportive, do-gooder Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, you know? Right. <laughs> and um, they, it's funny because sometimes you'll see a ranger car speeding across the playa with a cop car right next to it. And they're kind of racing each other to get to the scene of something. The rangers want to get there first so they can try to manage it as peacefully as possible. And, you know. Before the big dog gets there. I get it. Yeah. No. Wow. So that's my impression, at least to be fair, obviously again, I'm not hundred percent. Well, and it sounds like that would be kind of a necessary thing to kind of make it a little safer. Cause it sounds like there is danger. And well, you said earlier, I mean, people die at this thing and it even says on your mm -hmm. ticket, we're not responsible, but you could die from this. Um, but it's, you know, I mean, I guess I just, uh, I didn't even think about the potential of assaults. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, you have 70,000 people together. Humans are humans. We are going to be the same monkey there as we are out in the other world, even if we try to put forward a better face and maybe even shift our internal behaviors by learning things there. I think it's a great place for people to learn um, about healthy inclusion of consent into they have um they have workshops that you can go to about consent while you're at burning man and that could really open your mind um i always tell the you know there's i, I tell the boys when they who were their first year i always go they're like oh my god there's all these boobs out on monday they're like boobs and i'm like i know right all this new beautiful women i said by wednesday you're only going to notice the pretty ones you're not even going to notice oh jeez <laughs> And they're like, no. And then by Thursday, they're like, you're right. I just, I've kind of phased it out. The nudity isn't so dramatic anymore. I've, I've already adapted cognitively to it. And I do only notice the really beautiful ones. <laughs> but is it just, so, the, I mean, is it just the women? I mean, there's got to be guys too. Who oh go yeah, there's naked men. There's a thing called shirt cocking. That's kind of a joke out there that men will wear like a t-shirt and just like be naked, like Daffy Duck in it. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Daffy Duck. Oh my God. And that's called shirt cocking. And yeah, I mean, there's lots of naked men out there. There's lots of naked women. It's just, you know, um, absolutely there's problems. And there's, you know, we have consent camps where you can go and talk about consent. There's like, we have to have that. I mean, men aren't going to change just because they went to a enlightening festival. You know, gotta, they were hashtag me too in it way before that ever had the streets you know oh wow and i just i guess you know it's funny because i never i mean it's been a long time since obviously i thought about daffy duck but um because i mean you're right like oh yeah the dude didn't wear pants that's <laughs> funny and i guess you know so and of course i'm thinking of like the sand blowing right so i'm thinking like man i don't it's know more dust it's like a white dust yeah, but I don't know if I want to get sandblasted on my junk. I got to be honest. Like, I, I it's not sandblasted. <laughs> it's more like having a, you know, like the powder women put on their faces. It's like that kind of powder. Oh, so it's not really super really coarse. Fine. 
Okay. Very fine. So yeah, when you first get there, people will have you get out of the car and roll around if you're a virgin, not like sexual virgin, but if it's your first year at Burning Man, right. they'll have you get out of the car and you're supposed to roll around and then cling a bell. I don't know if they do that anymore with the amount of people coming in, but that was how it was when I first came. And it's, uh, it's a, um, thing to come to peace with the dust. You just come to peace with it. And Burning Man has actually expanded long past the border of Blackrock. Well, Blackrock City is what we call the name of the city. But yes. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. I'd say if you're curious to explore Burning Man, go to a regional. A regional is probably more close to the original Burning Man experience because it's local community bringing their own art projects, participating and working together to create a fun party that's reflective of the Burning Man culture and credo, but is your community building something together rather than this esoteric other community. One of my friends who brings large art projects every year, I, I question people on Facebook and I was like, hey, what? how has Burning Man changed? And one of them uh, her name's Anne, and she brings large art projects. She said people are asking less questions now. And I thought that was really interesting that she said, um, as a small-time family farm artist, we have a great time bringing out stuff when we can, and the chance to experience the epic art is amazing. It's definitely not the same as the rich array of smaller, wacky projects that we had in previous years. The crowd is different too. more Kodak photo moment visitors for us who got a photo of themselves and moved on and fewer people who are truly interested in what we do and wanted to talk about it. So you mentioned the Victorian house people. Right. I hung out with them for an hour. You know, I didn't just get on their house. You can't do everything at Burning Man anyway. You don't just go around snapping photos of everything unless that's your practice for the day. Mm -hmm. You know, I got on the Victorian house and I hang out and I talk to the artists who made it for a little while. I forget their names because it was 10 years ago, but you want to interact. Right. And that's a form of participation is just learning how this thing came to be and why did they do it? And it takes a huge amount of money to build something like that. So oh, yeah. time and effort. So what inspired them? What made what draw what drew them to that project? So talking to the artists is key instead of it just being like, look at me, I'm at Burning Man, I'm impressing all my friends. Yeah. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier about like the Instagram thing. And, and if you're going out there just for photos, you're not embracing it. And and it's sad that that would kind of be a turn on it. Well, and I have to be honest, I didn't even know there was a regional. Like, that blows my mind. I'm like, I didn't even know that was a thing. So, but it does. It, it's expanded way past. And I think maybe that is the um, kind of the the little hidden gem that even if the center kind of goes this other way where you're not getting what it once was, the satellite ones are. And that that's cool. You know what I mean? Because it does keep it alive, the original spirit. And I think it's important. And I think that's what the makers of Burning Man have in mind, that they want to have this expand beyond them. Not necessarily, I mean, Meow Wolf in New Mexico. Do you know about Meow Wolf? No. What is that? God, you have to go to Santa Fe. So that's a very Burning Man-esque project where they created 75 rooms, each designed by a different artist. And you can go into this bowling alley, I think, that they <gasps> refurbished. I saw that. Where did I see that? I saw that on something. Was it CBS so Sunday morning? And they've really commodified it in a big way where they're not attached to Burning Man, so they can commodify it more. And so they expanded it into, they started in Santa Fe, which was much more the Burning Man vibe, I think, in that sense of being a creative art mm. community. 
Then they made one in Vegas and Denver and, you know, and they're, they're about making money in a big way. Well, I, I'm going to be embarrassed here for just a second. So I've lived in Arizona since 98 and I've never been to Santa Fe. <laughs> well, if you love art, you should go to right? Santa Fe. Yes, I want to get to your tarot and intuition coaching. I want to know, first of all, how did you get to tarot and how, what is intuition coaching? Like, I'm like, I didn't even know that was a thing either. So I'm really fascinated with this. So people have this presumption that intuition is one of those things that we're all just gifted. Like, it's like, you're, you're, oh, you're a psychic. You just have the gift. I mean, everyone has that gift. It's just a matter of how loud it is in you and then how much you choose to hone it and, and build that skill. We all have, some people sure can be a better painter than others, but the people who work on their skill of painting are going to become better than the ones who are just naturally gifted most likely. Okay. In most cases. So intuition coaching is when I sit down with someone and I try to learn how and why they want to use their intuition and get them into a state of practicing self-trust with different techniques so that they can really hone in on listening to themselves and trusting their gut. Most CEOs say that they think from their gut and that they make intuitive choices all the time. And they're the ones making all the money. If we all were to start accessing our own gut instincts, our trust of our choices based on this feels right to me on a deeper level than emotional or mental, then we can begin to access our higher self and I believe our best choices. And I think make better choices for the world because I, I personally believe intuition comes from a place that's can be for the good of all. You know, instinct might be more selfish. Intuition to me is what is for the greatest good here. And so through being it, I became a tarot reader. I started reading when I was 15, when I got a reading in New Orleans with this guy named Jarek, who was kind of a, an interesting, curious character who had curly blonde hair cut to his shoulders square away and weird little bangs and wore a medieval outfit. And I'm like, this is a weird dude. And then got a reading from him, was impressed, got a deck, started learning. And 15 years later, could not find work in New Orleans when I was staying there had every sign from the universe telling me to go out and read cards on the Jackson Square, sat in a spot, gave a reading, and a girl came up to me with a pink bob wig on and a pink little bike and said, oh, you're sitting in Jarek's spot. And I'm like, what? <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah, he's not here on Sunday nights, but you're in his spot. So I had chosen the same location of the person who gave me my first reading. Oh, wow. And I felt like it was magical and it is a form of magic. And so for me, what I love about tarot reading is it's empowering people to access magic in their life and trust that magic is possible. And I think a lot of that I gained from going to Burning Man and experiencing the magic there. Um, and although it's uncomfortable magic sometimes. <laughs> and um, what makes it uncomfortable? The dust, the heat, the oh, you mean like physical? It takes. I mean, I stopped going because I just got literally burned out on how much it, you know it takes all of August to get ready, and then you go out and you exhaust yourself out there, and then you come back and you sleep for a day, and then you got to clean up all the dust that gets on every zipper, needs vinegar on it. Every every tent stake needs vinegar on it. It's just like oh wow or the alkaline it's a lot of work to go to burning man it's not a half-assed thing to do it's not it's less fun if you go half-assed so you know um 
there's a discomfort to it. And you're, you're pushing your comfort zones. So it's got that aspect. Um, so for me, I feel like Burning Man really helped me to allow more magic in. And then tarot reading has allowed me to bring that to my normal day. And uh, I love teaching the cards because it's really fun to help people feel empowered to do the readings for themselves and to learn these archetypes that are part of the collective unconscious. I mean, Jung, Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, they loved Tarot. So it's funny that we kind of, I think, culturally kind of poo-poo it as being this hippie thing when some of our greatest minds of psychology and of mythology are huge fans. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, Joseph Campbell wrote an introduction to a Tarot book. Um, really? Jung talked often about how we need to regard it more. Uh, it's it's an incredible art form. Jenna, I cannot thank you enough for your time and your insight. And you are you're hilarious. And I want to thank you. And anytime you ever want to come and talk about anything you want, you are always welcome to you can come, come you can come to my camp and you are more than welcome to talk at any time this is my podcast camp and you are welcome there thank you for your radical inclusion <laughs> well, i appreciate that thank you so much you're welcome you've been listening to the edited for content podcast again if you enjoyed it let me know share it and come back again thanks for listening my friend have a great day